The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Fast Money's on the road in Miami. A city that's a lot more than palm trees, beaches, and after-hours fun. We're here for the iConnections Global Alt Investment Conference. Our headliners tonight, legendary investor and short seller Jim Chanos, plus a venture capitalist who left the hustle and bustle of Silicon Valley for the sun, sand, and business vibe of South Florida. And later, the crypto winter seems to be thawing, but will that reignite Miami's Bitcoin dreams? Fast Money starts right now. Welcome to Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee, live from Miami Beach, Florida, from the iconic Fontainebleau Hotel, where the iConnections Global Alts Conference, a sprawling event that brings together titans from the investment, finance, economics, and crypto worlds. Joining me on the desk tonight is Dan Nathan and Guy Adami, who apparently drew the short straw tonight. <laughs> what does that even mean? Why? Short straw? No, this is I'm fun. I'm saying that this is amazing. Oh, I so see. It was, it was, it was sarcasm. Is, exactly. By the way, this is the place that, like, Sinatra would hang out at with Dean Martin. You know, like, I'm partial to those guys, as you I know. know. So. But, I mean, this is a really, I mean, for all the talk of a looming recession, it doesn't feel like that here. It doesn't feel like it here. If you walk this resort here and you see all the people are here just to be at a resort, and then you look at the thousands of people are here to do business and be at the, an event like this, it doesn't feel, I haven't felt this way since before the pandemic. To be very honest with you. Yeah. Meantime, a different story in the markets today, so let's get to that. Let's turn to the market. Stocks kicking off the week with broad losses, the Nasdaq dropping nearly 2%. Its biggest loss of the year so far, the SP down more than a percent, 10 of 11 sectors losing ground. The Dow shedding 260 points. The sell off comes as we get ready for a very big week of market moving events. The Fed decision on Wednesday, earnings from Meta, Apple, Alphabet, and Amazon, and the January jobs report all on the calendar. So could this week's news accelerate? today's losses, it, it felt like we were a little bit long overdue for this, considering the slate of things that were happening Look, the week. last week and a half has surprised me for sure. I can only speak about myself, but the rally we've seen over the last 10 or so trading days has been really interesting. I'm not sure what it's been predicated upon, but, you know, can this basically accelerate the losses to the downside? Absolutely. But can it also accelerate the move to the upside? I mean, if you get some sort of dovish Fed talk, or if you get a soft number, or if Apple doesn't disappoint, I mean, today can be reversed in a heartbeat. So what I said last week on a show, and I'll reiterate, it sounds somewhat glib, it's not meant to be. It's going to move one way or another, and you're not fading either side. I happen to think the move is going to be significantly lower, but if this thing goes through 4,100, we're going to see the August highs without question. It is a possibility, too, that big tech disappoints. I mean, look at what we had with Microsoft. Yeah. Um, we're back at pre-earnings levels at this point. Yeah, and I think the Microsoft is really an interesting example where the estimates had come down, expectations had come down, the dollar, which we know was a big headwind last year, should be a tailwind now if you think about where the U.S. dollar index is. They warned on the headwind of the dollar. Remember that? 
back in June of 2022. And I guess the thing I just say is this, like, you know, with rates lower, with a lot of these inflationary yeah. inputs, the last piece of the puzzle, I hate to skip ahead to Friday, is going to be jobs. It's going to be what we think is happening in the labor market, what we think is happening to that wage inflation that we know is really sticky. So to me, I think there's a little something for everybody right now. I just don't think we're going to come out of this earnings season on a big up note about the optimism about, uh, you know, some sort of earnings guidance bottoming out in Q1 or Q2. I think it's going to take more than a few quarters to get that done with. A lot has happened, though, that would give reason for the markets to move higher. You mentioned Mm -hmm. um, we're we're closer to the end of rate hiking, correct? Um, Interest rates have come in. The dollar has come in. We've gotten a lot of things that are going in our favor. A lot of really good things. Look, Europe didn't cascade lower. They got a break in terms of natural gas and those types of things. The winter was warm. Obviously, China reopening is a bit of a tailwind as well. I mean, people are optimistic. They think this Fed somehow is going to give them a pass in the back half of the year. I totally understand it. The flip side of that coin, to Dan's point, is this is an environment where you're not paying up in terms of earnings, I don't think. An 18 multiple, which is effectively where we're trading now, assuming earnings coming in at these levels, which is probably not going to happen. I think earnings continue to contract, and then the multiple you pay should be less. So even if you're paying a 17 multiple, at 200 times, which is where this thing's going to come out, that's a 3,400 S&P, Mel. Yeah, here's the other thing. You know, I mean, we're kind of the guys who have been pretty bearish for the last year or so, and now we're the guys who are really, really wrong, you know, in this January. <laughs> right. And I keep, I get, listen, I get emails, I get tweets. You know, guy probably responds to a few too many of those hate tweets there, here and there. But I'll just say this. You know, we started to think this in November and December. We're like, listen, if the consensus is now coming our way, right, that the first half is going to be bad, where we start seeing these meaningfully earnings declines here, okay, and then if that's the consensus, it can't work that way, right? So we've rallied, we've you know, climbed that wall of worry here. And I just think that if people think that Europe is out of the woods and China's reopening, there's a chance at some point later this year, maybe it's the first half is okay and the second half is really bad. Maybe that's how it plays out. I just don't think, to your point, Guy, about the S&P at 18 times, this is not how bear markets end. I've said this again and again and again. So at some point here, we're going to have everything not as rosy as it appears right now. And this, this is not a high-quality rally in the stock market. Let's be clear on that. So to me, I, I just think that we're going to be retesting those October lows at some point, probably in the second quarter. It is amazing, though, how many people uh, forget, don't fight the Fed mm-hmm. at this point. And do you think Jerome Powell is going to come out on Wednesday and be like, OK, it's fine that the markets rally? He does not want to see, I'm sure, the markets rally on the back of that FOMC meeting. Absolutely not. I mean, people getting on David Tepper. I mean, when he came out and made those comments probably a month and a half or so ago, to a certain extent, that sort of was a bell ringing for the bottom. People say Tepper rang the bell. He didn't. Maybe in the short term, yes, but you're 100% right. If it's true when the Fed is adding liquidity and lowering rates that by being bearish you're fighting the Fed, the same should be true now. If you're bullish in this environment, you're effectively fighting that same Federal Reserve. And they have made it abundantly clear that they don't want asset prices to go higher, and they seemingly are hell-bent on getting the unemployment rate somewhere around 5 or so percent. Something breaks on the way to 5%. Yeah, let's get to another potential concern for the markets. Top Air Force General warning that the U.S. could be at war with China in the next two years. This according to a memo obtained by NBC News. Eamon Javers joins us with more out of that memo and what it could mean for U.S. policy. Eamon. 
Well, Melissa, taxpayers get paid. Uh, uh, taxpayers pay American generals to do two things, right? Fight wars and prepare for the next wars that are coming up. And in that new memo, General Mike Minahan used unusually blunt language. The general cites presidential elections in the United States and in Taiwan set for 2024 and postulates that the Chinese government could use those moments of political distraction to strike Taiwan. He says, my gut tells me we will fight in 2025. He added that he wants an agile joint force maneuver team ready to fight and win inside the first island chain. Now, that kind of language, just usually not what you hear from American diplomats or from the White House. They tend to speak more in these gauzy terms about China being a strategic competitor. But a Department of Defense spokesperson tells NBC these comments are not representative of the department's view on China. So it's difficult to even talk about this, Melissa, in terms of the economic costs of a shooting war with China when you compare it to the catastrophic loss of life and human suffering that would come from any kind of war like that. But it is safe to say that a war between the United States and China would have an immediate and devastating impact on supply chains and market access for American companies. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Jabbers. What's interesting about this memo guide, and you've been saying that this is on your sort of bingo card for wildcard events this year in terms of geopolitical tensions, uh, is that he's basically saying Taiwan and U.S. will have elections in 2024 and they will both be distracted. And that's Xi Jinping's opportunity to jump in. It makes perfect sense. Listen, we're tasked with talking about what are the ramifications for the economies, mm -hmm. markets and stuff. So as Eamon mentioned, loss of life obviously is catastrophic. But when you talk about the markets, that's something we posited back before the Winter Olympics. If you remember, we talked about the potential Russia-Ukraine. That wound up happening probably a week before we thought it would happen. And China-Taiwan, it's out there. And again, you know, if you put yourselves in their shoes, it makes perfect sense. I hate to say it, but that is clearly out there. And 2025, I mean, that's not like it's all that far away. The market, in my opinion, the 19 VIX, wherever we close today, is clearly not pricing. Yeah, well, if you think about this, I mean, you know, deglobalization, if you think about the disruption of supply chains that we've had because of the pandemic on the flip side of it, I mean, this is massively inflationary. So for all you people thinking that the Fed may have to, you know, cut at some point because of declining growth in the back half this year, that might be the case. But if we are reshoring jobs and that point that we just made about the stickiness of those wage, you know, wage inflation, I mean, that could get just the Fed this tailwind to keep rates higher for longer. Yeah. Uh, let's bring in Fame Shortseller. This is our headliner for this evening. Mm. Jim Chanos, founder of Chanos and Company. Jim, it's a pleasure to have you with us. Thanks so much for joining us. Welcome to my hood. I know, <laughs> your new hood, or not relative, uh, relatively new, down I guess. 20 years. Tw oh, 20 years. I didn't realize yeah, that long. Yeah. Um, what do you make of this, this memo, this notion that, that we could be at war with China? It feels like people don't want to believe it or don't believe it. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, uh, the war in the Pacific is serious stuff. I mean, let's not forget we have a land war in Europe going on right now. I mean, uh, you know, sort of a World War II, tanks, artillery, things we haven't really seen in, in, in our lifetimes. And uh, so a shooting war in, in the Pacific, you know, all bets are off. I mean, I, I certainly hope that doesn't happen. And um, But, yeah, I mean, it, it, it upsets everything because of what Guy said. I mean, whether it's supply chains... Um, whatever. I mean, we having having China go to war with the West would be just apocalyptic. How does that factor in, if at all, uh, to your view on China and how you view that market in terms of opportunities for you? Yeah. Um, well, obviously, our, our view on China, which is now 12 years old, I mean, has been based on the financial system and the debt and real estate markets over there. And not a whole lot changes. Obviously, China will become more insular. Um, 
I've been watching the, the China reopening trade like everybody else has for the last six or nine months um, and uh, sort of marveling at it. Um, but I don't think there's any way to handicap it from my perspective as a hedge fund manager. I mean, again, if it, if it happens, it's, uh, it, it, the unintended consequences will be severe. Jim, do you think though, you know, going forward, we're just seeing, you know, the, I guess the, um, you know, the situation with Russia and Ukraine was simple. U.S. multinationals had to take a stand about the uh, the Russian aggression. It's a little different with China. When you think about our reliance from a manufacturing standpoint, our U.S. multinationals' interest in that emerging middle class, which has been a part of the bull case for 20 years now in China, how would that play out? Because I really feel like that could change the dynamic for a lot of U.S. companies. Yeah, I mean, I, again, I, I think that, that we're far more intertwined into the Asian economies, in particular China. And, and so uh, anything that, that would end that and bring this into a, a Cold War, much less a, a shooting war, um, I mean, just has to, be, ha, has to be just a major, major event for not only markets, but geopolitics. I mean, it's, yeah, scary stuff. Jim, we talked about multiples of this market, expensive, not expensive. I mean... 30,000 feet. What are your thoughts? Again, that don't fight the Fed mantra that's been out there. For some reason, people want to look past it when it doesn't sort of line up with the market going higher for them. Um, Well, I think, you know, we we don't try to time the market. um, But like anybody else, I have opinions and things are not cheap. I mean, uh, they're not as expensive as they were, say, a year and a half ago. Um, On the other hand, um, the market is at 18 times forward. Um, profit margins are at all-time highs, so that has not mean reverted. And one of the most mean reverting time series in all of economics and finance is corporate profitability. And it's been stubbornly good and, and high. Um, but since I've been on the street in 1980, not one bear market has ever traded above 9 to 14 times the previous peak earnings. So whether it's 87, 89, 90, 94, uh, 2002, uh, or 09, um, if you think earnings are peaking now at $200, um, that's a long way down, right? That's 1,800 to 2,800. Um, we're not anywhere near that. And, uh, and so you have to hope earnings hold up, um, and you have to hope, I mean, look, Right now, the market in the, in the space of really six, seven months has gone to corporate profits are going to be up 12% this year. Inflation's coming down to 2%. The Fed may be easing at the end of the year. I mean, that's pretty much nirvana if you're a bull. Uh, that's, but that's what markets actually forward pricing think right now. Uh, they're wrong all the time. But people are pricing in a pretty, pretty nice Goldilocks scenario. Are you trading the markets directionally overall, or is it just individual? No, I mean, we, in our hedge fund, we are slightly net short, slightly net long. Um, and, and so until recently, we were actually slightly net long. I think we've gone to, to back down to zero line, plus or minus. Um, and in our short-only funds, we're 60 to 80%. Um, and so it just depends on the individual names in those. and. And we try not to take a lot of systematic market risk in our hedge fund. A lot changes, though, when you go from 0% interest rates to what could be 5%. It yeah. certainly accelerate the fundamental stories you bet against um, when you do your deep fundamental analysis. So I'm wondering, are there, are there positions you think 
look even better now because that environment changes. Maybe the debt service is too heavy a burden, et cetera. Well, one of the areas I'm, I'm marveling that has held up as well as it has, with, with a couple of exceptions in subsectors like office, has been commercial real estate. Um, I just don't get people buying almost any kind of, of, of commercial real estate that is that, that doesn't see good demand at this point at 3%, 4%, 5% so-called cap rates. It makes no sense. You know, SL Green, which we are short, New York offices, have uh, been short now for a couple of years, trades at a 5% cap rate, and it's levered massively to its cash flow. Um, and I just don't want to buy New York office buildings right now at, at, at a 5% cap when the balance sheet is leveraged 15 to 1. It just makes... A, and I mean, and there's all kinds of stories like this out there in the commercial real estate. Um, as you know, we're, we're short the data centers, which I think is one of the worst businesses I've ever seen. Um, they traded 100 times earnings. And, and, and earnings are the metric because CapEx equals depreciation. And so there's just all sorts of odd anomalies in the valuation space of things that are just in the stratosphere still that sort of make no sense to us. Yeah, sometimes things look cheap and they're actually more expensive than, like, the Intel quarter, for example, was a disaster in that world. Debt ceiling, and if politics are boring, we don't really talk about them, and I'm not suggesting we're going to go down 2011 path when U.S. debt got downgraded, but it's clear that there's a faction of people that want to push the envelope on this. Is that something that concerns you, or we just sort of slide through this like we typically do? No, I mean, again, it's another black, that would be a kind of another black swan that no one thinks will happen, including me. Um, I, I mean, just when push comes to shove, I think we're going to pay the interest on our debt. Um, but who knows? It could be wrong. We've got a lot more to talk about with you, Jim. So stick around. Okay. <laughs> we're going to take a quick break and continue this conversation on the other side. And later, SoFi serves the upbeat earnings forecast at Sunshare soaring the details in just a few. You're watching a special Fast Money live in Miami. Back in two. Hello, I'm Laura Castleton, U.S. Head of Portfolio Construction and Strategy at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of brighter futures for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money Live in Miami. We're back with famed short seller Jim Chanos, founder of Chanos and Company. We got to get to it. The Tesla 
question. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, That's yes. Um, you're still short, correct? We are short. Yep. Um, but you trade around that position. We correct? do. It's been bigger and smaller, and, uh, and, and but we are still short. What is the what is the fundament? What is the thesis now? Um, so what I would, would I point out is, is what I mentioned uh, today on social media, which is it's it's interesting is what the bull case has done. The bear case has been pretty consistent. That the competition was coming in, margins would have to come in, sales would slow from the torrid pace. What I'm more amused by is how the bulls have effortlessly shifted from in October. Uh, this is the only company still growing 40 or 50 percent, and you can pay 60 times earnings. Uh, Four dollars last year in October, the stock was 240 dollars. Um, now that earnings estimates have come in hard for 2023, up 10%, $4.40 versus $4. Now the narrative seems to be, well, yeah, there's a price war going on, but the legacy auto guys are going to be hurt a lot more than Tesla is. Okay. But that just shows you that the auto business is a tough business, right? It's, if you've got to cut price as well as raise price for ebbing supply and demand, you're in the auto business. You're in a cyclical business. And his margins, which peaked out in the high 20s, gross margins, are now heading, we think, into the high teens, where they were before they opened China. Everybody forgets Tesla lost money through 2019 building cars in the United States. It wasn't until they opened Shanghai and that ramped in a major way that their margins took off. And China right now is their weakest market. Um, so he's, you know, they're wrestling with some issues. And, and the stock is still at almost $550 billion market cap, is trading now at 20-sometimes gross profits. It trades at a premium. I looked before I got here. It actually trades at a premium in terms of its multiples to Ferrari and Porsche. Wow. But does it tell you something, at, I don't know, about the mentality of the, of the Tesla's stockholder that the earnings have been reported, that it is known now that their margins are going to decline by a lot, um, and the stock still went higher on the back of the earnings. And, by the way, Ford has said that we have to cut the price of the Mach-E because of Tesla, that the competition is getting to the point where they have to follow what Tesla is doing. I mean, isn't this a case of Tesla trying to just gain share? And so in the long run, they're better off because they'll have the volume and their margins will be better. Melissa, can I introduce you to some other stocks in my portfolio in the last three <laughs> weeks that are up more than Tesla that are going bankrupt? <laughs> I mean, it's been an insane three or four weeks, much like August, July, August. And so you've had stocks like Carvana, Triple. Uh, you've had Beyond Meat, which we think runs out of money this year, uh, up 40%, 50%. I mean, Tesla's not alone. It, it, so, Jim, let's talk about Tesla in China, okay, because yep. we know that they have this great market share here in the U.S., and I think Melissa just mentioned that Mustang Mach-E price cut. They're making those cars in Detroit here, okay? Mm -hmm. But the cars that Tesla are making in China, they have less than 10% market share over there. And a lot of these local manufacturers are obviously doing much better, and I see no reason for that to change. Throw in what we just talked about, this, this geopolitical potential. Our situation with China is not getting any better, yeah. but yet he's placing 
seeing more and more emphasis on that market from a manufacturing standpoint, from access to rare earth materials for their batteries, and then also the demand for the cars. It just seems like pretty obvious to me that this is going to be, this only gets worse before it gets better in China for them. Well, Dan, I mean, you know, I've been saying kind of half tongue in cheek that Tesla is a Chinese car company, and, and it really is. Um, it, the, the bulk of its production is there, and we think almost all its profits are generated there. And so you have all kinds of risks now in light of our earlier discussion about the warnings. But on top of that, uh, you have repatriation of capital risk. You have BYD and others just taking massive market share. And Tesla trades at a premium to those companies who are growing faster than they are in, in China. So if you want to play all these things, there are now lots of ways to do it. If you want to play the growth of EVs in China, you can buy BYD, you can buy NEO, you can buy Lee. Do you I own mean, BYD? No. Um, we own the S&P and, and, and the NASDAQ. Um, I don't think it's in the NASDAQ. So if it's in the NASDAQ, we own it. But um, I, I just think that, that it's, it's really the choices now are increasing. And the bears were wrong on competition. It took a long time to show up. But I don't think they're wrong now. I think it, the competition is growing and, and it's here. Let's play the trade around it game. Traded down to 101 and change, rallied 75% or so since. Carter Worth last week said mm -hmm. the stock is going to trade up to 175, yeah. middle of that downtrend and fail. It's sort of doing that today. You're trading around it. Where's the ultimate level for this thing to get to a point where you say, you know what, that's it. I've, I've got enough. This is my level. Well, I mean, so again, the street estimates have come down dramatically. So street estimates for this year were $6. They're now four and change. We think the number has a two in front of it this year. And, and so then the question will be, will investors say, gee, this is cyclical? I mean, uh, earnings were cut in half. Um, and what kind of multiple? I think it'll always trade at a premium over the intermediate term to other OEMs. But I don't think it should trade at 5x premium to the other OEMs. And that's where it is. I mean, it, again, the other OEMs trade at three to five times gross profits. Tesla's trading at over 20 times gross profits. And, and so and the magnitude of the, the valuation discrepancy is enormous here. And, and I think that's, at some point, that's going to close dramatically. Now, is it $40, $60? I mean, I don't know. We'll have to see. But I don't think it's 170 Is there anything that you think maybe I don't get this part of the Tesla story or this is the, the one wild card? that could happen that would cause me to rethink my short. I mean, you've been short, a short, a directional short for a long time. The position size changes mm -hmm. over time, but yeah. but is there something that, that sort of gnaws at you? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. I mean, it's something gnawed at me for for better part of four or five years. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the stock was flat for five years and then took off. Um, Why didn't you cut your short? Then? We did. We, we did. did. We did. Yeah. Were you completely out of that no, short at the time? I don't no, think, I don't think we've ever been completely out. But okay. we, we vary positions from half of 1% to 5%. 5% our limit, and things rarely get over 4 for us. Where are you So now? when people, people talk to us about a Tesla, whatever, uh -huh. they always mistakenly assume it's our only position. Right? It's one of 43 names in our portfolio. So, I mean, we have, we have a few other ideas. Um, right now, it's kind of in the middle of that, that range. Um, but I, I told, uh, I debated, uh, I debated a noted Tesla bull yes. uh, a, a week and a half ago. And I, I, I stand by what I said. I think if Tesla were to show reacceleration of earnings, I think we would rethink our position. Like to, you know, suddenly 450 became five and six and seven again. Um, I think their profits are going to be under pressure, and I think it's going to be 
relatively permanent. I don't think they're going to be earning 28, 30% gross margins. I think it's too competitive market at this point. They're too big. Um, they've been successful, right? But law of large numbers. And now they're having to go down market to get more share and, and more volume. And that puts them right square in, you know, with, with the Japanese, German, and U.S. auto manufacturers. Right. All right, we've got 42 other names to talk to you. <laughs> Jim's going to stick around for one more block. We'll also talk about how Miami aimed to become the crypto center oh of America. And now it seems that crypto winter is taking over. We'll have much more on the crypto winter and where Bitcoin is headed right after this break. We're uh, Fast Money Live from Miami, special edition. Stick around. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are live in Miami, and we're back with famed short seller Jim Chanos, founder of Chanos & Company. We spent a lot of time on Tesla, but you are short and long, other things. You referenced the meme stock mania, and you are actually long one. And short, well, we're long I, and short kind of I the know. same one. Yeah. yeah. Walk me through that trade. That's yeah. fascinating. So uh, we, uh, we are long the uh, AMC preferred, uh, the so-called APE shares, APE. And uh, we've been bearish on the common for a long time since the post-meme stock run-up. And Adam Aaron, to his credit, is trying to raise capital, which I think he's, he's doing the right thing for the company. Um, and they realized they, had this, they realized this loophole last August where they could issue preferred shares. They couldn't issue any more common. The shareholders wouldn't let them uh, issue any more common. They find kind of a backdoor around that. And then they did a big private placement uh, with a private investor who agreed to vote shares on behalf of converting these. So what's going to happen is going to be a shareholder vote in March. They filed the document on Friday night. And uh, the preferred shareholders can vote. The common shareholders can vote. We think there's enough votes to force conversion. And so one ape will become one share of AMC. And they're still trading at about $3 difference. It's, it's a classic arbitrage. I didn't know there was math in Miami. But apparently there is. But I'll ask you this question. So go to 30,000 feet. And what does it say about the state of the market when you can see names like that move 100 yeah. percent one day and 100 percent the next day? Does that mean we're closer to bottom in the middle of this whole thing? What does it say to you? Well, since the first quarter of 2021, which I keep saying was the most speculative market I've seen in my lifetime, um, the meme stocks, the SPACs, I mean, the, the NFTs, crypto, um, Every time the meme stocks have, have taken off, it's been the end of the rally, not the beginning of the rally. Huh. And that goes back to January of 2021. Uh, there was a, a, a similar rally in June, July of 2021, another one in, in the fall. And then we had one in March, April of 2022. We had a big one in July, August, mini one in November, October, November, and, and we just had a big one in January. Um, and every time the retail comes back into these names to squeeze the shorts or you know do whatever they're going to do, um, it's a pretty good sign that, that that 
people have lost their fear. And they're buying near bankrupt companies or companies like this and restructuring. I, I, Bed Bath & Beyond is a wonderful example. I mean, that, that ran earlier this month. And uh, their bonds are trading, I think, now at four cents on the dollar. Four cents. Yeah. So if you really thought Bed Bath & Beyond was going to turn around and become a great company again, you would have a 25-bagger by buying the bonds. Mm-hmm. And nobody wants them. But the stock they love. That makes no sense. What is the environment like um, with rising interest rates, with, with the market decline that you're forecasting or expecting to be a short seller? And I'm asking you, I guess, this huh. in the context of um, Hindenburg Research issuing its report on Adani Group. Yeah. And that stock in India just wiping out tens of billions of dollars in market cap over the span of just a few trading days. And... Um, I, in, in context of what? Maybe uh, refine your question a little bit. People are really listening to short sellers these yeah, days. Yeah, I mean, well, 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 I mean, Hindenburg is a, is, is a is a very unique example. They do phenomenal work, and, and the the Adani report was 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 amazing. I read it over the weekend, and um, and so you know, we like other investors when they when they put something out, we we rush to read it. Um, but look, I mean, this is kind of this has been an eternal struggle between the bulls and the bears. And, and short sellers continue to be vilified. I mean, just get on social media. And, and, and so many stocks have a rationale for ownership because of the short position. And I just keep warning people, please don't buy worthless pieces of paper because someone has a different opinion than you. Right? Do the work and, and, and understand what these stocks might be worth as companies before you just say, oh, it's got a big short position. I'm going to buy it. It's not a great reason. So, Jim, you just mentioned over the last two years now that when you've seen some of the stuff, the sort of activity that we're seeing right now, um, you know, happen, the exuberance, it's kind of meant the end of this rally. We're 15 or so percent off of those October lows. We've seen a massive rotation over this period since those lows into financials, into industrials, yeah. into, you know, some other groups. And, and, and mega cap tech has underperformed. But to me, if I look at like a Caterpillar or if I look at like a JP Morgan, you know, like I see valuations that may, may make but, a whole heck of a lot of sense. Given what I think is going to happen yeah. to the economy, so are those presenting some interesting yeah, shorting they opportunities? Are. I mean, in fact, we talk about the meme stocks and Tesla, and people like to talk about it. But we have far more core positions, Melissa, in what I would call massively overvalued, crummy, well-known businesses where the returns on capital are terrible or cyclical, and people have bid them up into the stratosphere. I, I'm, we're marveling at General Electric at 40 to 50 times earnings. General Electric. I mean, I, you know, it, it's gone through restructuring. They spun off healthcare at the end of the year, and estimates have just kept coming down. And now the estimates for this year are a dollar sixty to two dollars. That's on an adjusted basis. And I point out that that GE puts out one of the most hysterical earnings press releases. There's like 18 pages of adjustments. Um, so the adjusted, adjusted, adjusted is a buck sixty to two dollars was $2.40 a few weeks ago. Stock's at 81. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, this is GE, you know, it's a cyclical company, often trades at 10 to 15 times earnings. It's at 40 to 50 times. And, and there are other names like that I, I don't want to go into. Dan and I were talking about some of them. The companies where, where earnings are going to be down meaningfully this year and flat from 2018, 2019, trading at 40 times, 45 times. Um, so there's a lot of pockets of silliness. They're just not in some of the names that were silly in 2021. Those have come down so much. But 
they're nonetheless, for what these companies are, they're pretty pricey. Jim, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for coming by. Thanks for allowing us into your neighborhood. <laughs> you guys should come by anytime. <laughs> I know about these guys. <laughs> Thank you, Jim Chanos of Chanos. Thanks. And Associates. All right, coming up. Could crypto be catching some of this Florida heat? Bitcoin starting 2023 off strong. So is crypto winter thawing out? More on that next. And it's been a tough year for Snap shares, but could tomorrow's results filter out some of the haters? How the options pits are gearing up for that one when fast money returns. Welcome back to Fast Money in Miami, live from the iConnections Global Alts Conference. Bitcoin has been in comeback mode since its recent lows, surging 37% since the start of the year alone. So is the crypto winter finally thawing? And what will it mean for Miami's crypto dreams? We're joined by Jelic Jabanputra of the Future Venture, Future Perfect Ventures Fund and Chris Ryan of Galaxy. Great to have you both here on set. Um, what do you think, Jelic, in terms of what we've seen? Have we seen the worst of it? Well, you, you never know that we've seen the worst, but we're certainly past some of the shock that we saw at the end of last year. Uh, and it, Bitcoin is performing as a, a risk-on asset again. Uh, we have governments around the world that are starting to recognize crypto assets as an investment vehicle, um, co- countries that had previously banned. And so I, I think we're definitely going to see a recovery that lasts for a while. When we look back, and is FTX going to be the best thing that ever happened to crypto or the worst thing? I think we needed to get rid of some of the fraudsters in the sector. We uh, knew there was going to be a downturn. Um, and, and really, FTX was classic fraud and, and very little to do with crypto assets themselves. And uh, we are investors in a lot of entrepreneurs that are big believers in uh, allowing uh, a bigger swath of the world to invest in these assets. And, and they uh, want to do it in, in a regulated environment. Uh, and so this is an opening for all of them to flourish. Chris, talk to us a little bit. You, you trade the crypto assets, yep. um, and I'm sure that you have uh, you know a focus that has a lot of different inputs here. Is it institutions? I mean, we just talked. We just heard that you know governments are looking more and more. That was always one of the bull cases. What do you think the bull case is right now? Devoid of maybe the retail investor coming back. This has been a heck of a run, but there's got to be something more than retail alone right now. I suspect. Yeah, I think over time, too, what we're going to see is a lot more talk on regulation. And one of the big stumbling blocks for institutional investors has been a lack of regulation. So, you know, we don't think regulation is going to be something that happens instantaneously. This is going to be kind of more of a long game in regulation. But the more that we're discussing that, the more that we're talking about it, and the more that institutions like us are working with regulators to try and lay out a logical framework for crypto, the more interest I think will pull in from institutions. There's a lot of just crap out there, though. I mean, there, you know, tokens, things that were just minted out of nothing. I mean, FTX coin is just one example of that. And so, I'm wondering, how do you, what, what is it going to take to shake that out of the industry? Yeah, there's, does it need to be shaken out? Well, I think it needs to because what we don't want to happen is to have retail investors continuing to get hoodwinked into mm-hmm. these tokens that have essentially zero value but where you have a lot of fraudsters which will try to proclaim you can get rich quick by owning this. And unfortunately, there's still a lot of people that believe that. So we do need to set the stage clean, um, get rid of that. 
and focus on those assets that actually have value, that have a growth proposition that we can actually build a technology on top of or with. Aside from Bitcoin, which coins do you like the best? <laughs> so uh, I've been told I can talk about a few. Okay. Um, you know, Bitcoin on a relative basis, I like it in the near term. Um, it's one of those assets that I think when the Fed really does start to reverse policy, you're going to see a lot of thrust back into Bitcoin. Uh, Ether is another great one. I mean, the two of those coins alone are 80% of the market cap of crypto, and they're the easiest to onboard from investors, and they're the easiest to kind of conceptualize. So I think those two assets are going to be around for quite some time. A number of the altcoins, there are a lot of interesting coins there, but it really will come back to the regulatory framework. It's very difficult for U.S.-based DeFi protocols to structure a token to actually create value, uh, because the second they do that, they are a security. So I think once that regulation is put in place, it's really going to help to set the stage for really interesting investments outside of those top coins. You guys, there's never enough time in these shows. Jellek and Chris, thank you so much for coming by. I appreciate it. Thank you. Coming up, Snap Earnings on deck and investors could be bracing for a huge move in the name of checking the options pits and Guy Adami's Snap score. That's next. Plus, from the hustle and bustle of Silicon Valley to the sunny beaches of South Florida, venture capitalists with a huge presence here in Miami Beach will join us in just a few. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Take a look at Snap shares uh, kicking off the week here with a gain of 1.7%. We're expecting earnings, so let's check in with Mike Coe, who has the options action on this one. Mike. Yeah, right now the options market implying a move of about 20% by the end of the week. It traded two and a half times its average daily options volume. The biggest trade, a purchase of the weekly 13, 14 and a half, one by two call spread, buying 7,500 of the 13 calls and selling 15,000 of the 14 and a half's targeting move of between 16 and 43% with the sweet spot up 30% by the end of the week. All right. Thanks for that, Mike. Uh, for more options action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Coming up from Silicon Valley to the South Shore, Florida, this venture capitalist says there is a bubble here. No. A bubble. Mm. We'll get more on that from here in Miami Beach. Don't go anywhere. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money, live in Miami. The venture capital landscape is evolving fast here. Nobody knows that better than our next guest. Jack Abraham is the CEO of Atomic, a venture capital firm with a huge presence here in Miami. Um, So you actually traded, Jack, welcome to the show, first of all. You traded Silicon Valley for Miami. When did you do that and why? So I did did it in June of 2020. It was actually on accident. I came here for what was supposed to be a seven-day trip, and the story goes I never left. (laughs) Actually, the Financial Times credits me as being patient zero for starting a lot of this movement because when I first moved here, I started telling my friends from Silicon Valley, Miami's actually really great. It's not what you think it is. You really have to check it out. They all came and they checked it out, and one by one they came. I like to think of Miami as a viral product with very high retention. People talk about it, it's very buzzy, but once they try it out, they stay. And at least of the people I know, I don't know anyone who's gone back to Silicon Valley or New York that's moved here. So wow. it's uh, it's fantastic here. I know you were chatting with our executive producer, Sandy Cannell, a little bit earlier. And you said to him that there is a bubble here, not necessarily a bubble that's going to pop, but a bubble that's akin to what Silicon Valley had once been in terms of the place to go, a, a self-fulfilling sort of ecosystem where everybody's connected, everybody knows something. Is that what's happening here? 
Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, we're somewhat insulated from the larger economy. The real how can that be? <laughs> well, the, the facts speak for themselves. So, you know, real estate here is still going up. It's going down in every other market in the U.S. Venture capital dollars into companies in this ecosystem are up 80% year over year. The next best city is Austin. It's negative 25%. New York is negative 45%. San Francisco is negative wow. 49%. So there's just a huge, I think, flight of talent here, flight of capital. $2 trillion in AUM has come here in the last two years alone. We're here at a conference where $10 trillion of AUM is here at this conference that you know, I'm going to be speaking at tomorrow and a lot of other prominent people will, will be. It's really become you know, a place that people want to come to. And as long as that's true, I think it'll bode really well for the local ecosystem. Jack, what excites you right now? Again, you know, like we're up in New York City. And again, I would tell you that the fintech community up there, they benefited from a lot of the you know, people leaving Silicon Valley. What excites you being here? Um, is it fintech? Is it crypto related? Is it still Web3? Web3 is still a thing here. Um, yeah, that's really, what, are you, what are you guys really focused on right now? I think that we're largely in an age where software is disrupting traditional industry. And one of the things that's great about Miami, and it's also great about New York, is there's a really diverse ecosystem of industries here and people who work in those industries. So software disrupting healthcare, software disrupting finance and fintech, software disrupt disrupting real estate and prop tech, those are really big themes that you see play out here. Um, there's some interesting things happening in everything from climate to um, energy to there is still Web3 going on. Um, so it's actually much, much more diverse than I think a lot of people would, would realize from the outset. It sounds like everything is amazing here in Miami, but interest rates are still higher and it's a different world in terms of any sort of investing. So has that changed how you invest? Has it changed the amount of money you take in? Anything? You know, I think what, what happened was in the past cycle, companies were rewarded for high growth at all costs. So it was actually, if you had a higher burn rate, that was almost better for venture capitalists. They knew you were going to fundraise again. They could get a mark on their equity. And that has totally flipped, where what really works now is low burn and still growth, but efficient growth. That's what really matters. So as long as you're a company that's able to achieve that, I think you can do well in this ecosystem. There's also been a huge flight of capital from the growth stage to the early stage. Now seed and series A's, those are still happening. The prices haven't dropped that much. But you see prices dropping 50 to 70% at the late stage, even if you can get a round done, which is pretty interesting. Wow. Jack, great to speak with you. Thank you. Great Jack to be here. Up next, the trader's final thoughts. Fast Money in Miami is back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Let's get some final thoughts from day one here at the iConnections Global Alts Conference. Think about the amount of money that's here. There are 3,000 people. I mean, this is crazy what's going on here. It is truly like pre-pandemic levels in terms of conferences, and people are excited to be here. What I'm watching tomorrow quickly, mm -hmm. check out that Caterpillar tomorrow before the bell there, Melms. It's not just pre-pandemic. Mean, it's like it's like 0% interest rate days are back here. That's what it feels like. Yeah, I mean, listen, you know, we hear this expression all the time about all the money on the sidelines, right, that needs to be deployed. Yeah. Well, that's here, right here and now, and they're matching, you know, allocators of funds with fund managers, and again, I mean, some of the best returns for a lot of different asset classes happen during downturns sort of period. So to me, it's kind of refreshing to hear a whole heck of a lot of different views about where they see our markets and markets abroad and different products. too. Right. But of course, we've got earnings. We've got the yes. Fed starting tomorrow. So 
It's it's huge. Yeah. Um, all right. We got Mike Wilson of Morgan Stanley tomorrow and also Michael Aragetti of Aries Capital. Thanks for watching Fast Money here in Miami. Back for day two tomorrow. We'll see you then. Mad Money starts right now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.